Welcome to another podcast from the Rotary and Community Services Radio Show, which is now in its 12th year. Our show is heard every Friday evening between 6 and 8 p.m. on Community Radio Station 94.1 FM, 3WBC, and is also streamed live on the World Wide Web at www.3wbc.org.au. Here is a recorded interview, first played on the 18th of May 2018, with past president of the Rotary Club of Woodend, Grant Hocking, who was then District Governor nominee for Rotary District 9800 and is now the District Governor-elect of Rotary District 9800. This is 94.1 FM 3WBC, the voice of the Inner East, and you're listening to the Rotary and Community Service radio show with Ian Salick right through until 8 o'clock tonight. Now I'm going to welcome another wonderful Rotary personality, the very committed past president of the Rotary Club of Wood End. Very importantly, our guest tonight, Grant Hocking, is taking on the role of District Governor in Rotary District 9800 in 2019-20 and therefore is currently recognised as the District Governor nominee. He not only has had a very active life in Rotary, but currently has a very busy working life as a senior ambulance manager in Victoria. In the Australian Day Honours List for paramedics in 2014, Grant Hocking was recognised for his 25-year career that has helped shape Ambulance Victoria's clinical standards, operations and outcomes. Grant a very big and warm welcome to the 94.1 FM 3WBC microphone and thank you for joining us. Thanks Ian, it's a pleasure to be here. Well it is always great to see you Grant yeah. because um, although you live in Woodend you're always in Melbourne seemingly doing fantastic yeah. work and uh, I obviously would love to talk to you and our listeners would love to hear about your work uh, in Ambulance Victoria and Rotary but first of all Let's find out a little bit about you. Where were you born? Uh, well, I was actually born at Williamstown Hospital. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yes. Back in 1964. So I found out recently it was one of the first hospitals built uh, in, well, I think probably in Melbourne, but certainly in the western suburbs. So a um, little bit of history. That's still going. It only does minor surgeries and things now in a small sort of urgent care centre, but it's still got a maternity section, so there's still babies being born there, which is great. What a lovely yeah. history and interesting, I suppose, that you were talking about Williamstown Hospital. Uh, I suppose with ambulances uh, in the early part of your career, you were turning up at more hospitals than the average person would go to in six lifetimes. Yeah, 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 that's true. And where was school? Oh, for me, school was, we lived on um, Blackshaws Road in North Altona, yep. which is a fairly busy road through that, that suburb, and um, a lot of trucks, a lot of traffic, but I went to Altona East Primary School um, for my primary education, and then moved to Altona North Tech, so I actually started at a technical school. Did you? Yeah, um, so I did all the usual things that goes with being at a tech school, so woodwork, metalwork, all those sorts of things, but also had you know, maths and English and a few science subjects. And that's sort of when I discovered that I really liked those sorts of things and I was getting really good marks. So then I switched over to um, a Paisley High School, which is now Paisley Secondary College, I think, which is in Newport. So again, I could walk to school and home again in about 25 minutes. That so wasn't too bad. 
or ride my bike. So Paisley High School uh, was where I finished and did my, uh, well, what was then, HSC. Yeah. And just moving on fairly quickly to your ambulance, I mean, that is a bit of a sea change, isn't it? To, to move to the, a career in ambulance yeah. work. Uh, there's some paramedical training, I take it. So yeah. after you were there, doing the tech work. I mean, how did all that eventually? Uh, well, um, what the reason I moved across to the secondary college was to do the science subjects. So I did physics, chemistry, uh -huh. biology, maths, and, and then I actually went to university for a year and did biological science. So again, similar subjects. And then um, in that period, a few years before that, I'd met my now wife, Melissa. We were at high school together. So high school sweethearts, as you might Lovely. say. Um, and she was going off to do nursing, and I thought, that sounds all right. So I um, uh, applied and got a position at Epworth Hospital and did my three-year nursing training at Epworth. Epworth Richmond? Richmond, yeah. It was a smaller, That was. this is in 1983, so it was a bit smaller than it is today. It's obviously expanded quite a lot. But they had their own training college on site and a nurse's home and all those sorts of things that go along with a, a training college and um, finished my nursing so I'm a graduate nurse or registered nurse um, but I only um, did a grad year and in that time I'd met and this is how I got into ambulance one of my colleagues um, she was married to a paramedic and as you do just out for dinner chatting and he said you should have a look at ambulance it's a good career and I thought that sounds all right too so I, I applied for that and got in straight away so um, I went from nursing straight into ambulance and did another three years training so that I started that in August 1986 so this year is I'm in my 33rd year of ambulance well congratulations mm. for the work you do because I know from what we read about in the media that working with ambulance uh, services these days can be fraught with quite a lot of hardships. It's not as easy as it was with all the new difficulties in society today in terms of drugs and the way you have to attend to people. Yeah, uh, certainly we're well aware of the impact of occupational violence uh, in our organisation. We've taken uh, a lot of um, you know, time and efforts being put into awareness and um, you know, ways and means of avoiding the situations or getting out of them. So. Um, in the last three to four years, we've had a number of um, educational um, days, programs put together for that very purpose. Uh, and then on top of that, obviously, our skill level, our clinical skill level has increased. So when I started 30 odd years ago, um, the paramedical skill level was oxygen and a few drugs. Today, our advanced life support paramedics, which is the lowest level, carry something like, you know, um, 20 different drugs. They put IVs in, they can put an airway in. Um, they can now, we've just started a program where they can take 12 lead ECGs, diagnose um, a cardiac um, problem, yeah, and then treat it with um, drugs that dissolve clots. So if you're having a heart attack, and you're having one that causes damage to a certain part of the heart muscle, this used to be a hospital-only treatment. To, to take them into hospital, they'd do a 12-lead, and they'd, if it was a clot, usually it's a clot in one of the cardiac vessels, they give the drug, bust the clot, and um, then blood flow is restored, the heart muscle come back, comes back to life. Well, we do that now in the field, and this is our everyday 
on the road, advanced life support paramedics. That's what the ALS stands for. I believe that's wonderful because you're saving what amounts to life-saving yeah. time, aren't you, yeah. really? Well, the, the motto they've had for years now is that minute is muscle what in a brilliant, relation what to a heart attack. So the statement. Yeah, yes. the sooner we can get that on board, dissolve that clot, restore the blood flow, the better uh, the outcome will be for the patient. And are you uh, advising the hospital emergency section before you get there that you have a patient with a certain condition and that you're bringing them in, you've done certain treatments? Yep. So when they arrive, they're far more ready uh, for surgery or whatever has to be done. Yeah. Because you've done some very vital prep, obviously. Yeah, um, we've always pre-notified the hospital of time-critical patients, as we call them. So anyone with a serious condition like a a heart problem, stroke, breathing issues, or you know, sometimes even a, a mental health issue where they might need to be in a, a separate room, um, in a calm, quiet place instead of the busy hubbub of the normal emergency department. So we will pre-notify, not always for time critical, but for some of those other issues as well, or whether there might be specialist need required on arrival. So yeah. And, and these days you have more of a managerial role in terms of where you're based and for certain parts of Victoria. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, if you would. So my role is clinical manager for the Grampians region um, of Victoria. So that's essentially um, the other side of Bacchus Marsh through to the South Australian border. That's a huge territory. It's big, yeah. Um, we're the second biggest district. So it, as you could imagine, it goes Balan and Dalesford and down to Meredith, and then virtually that big corridor yes. up through Ballarat, Ararat, Stall, Horsham, and then spreads out pretty wide. So it takes in Donald and virtually goes halfway up to Mildura. So we, we capture, capture Woomalang, um, Hopeton, Japarat, Rainbow, yes. and then we do Nil, and the other side we do down to Eden Hope and uh, Arapiles and all that, and then through to the South Australian border. That's a huge territory. Do yeah. you go out still with the, with the, with the crew, the ambulance crews? Is uh, that a regular part of, you know, um, training? Not still? so often. I tend to. Oh, we have to maintain a, a clinical standard. Standard. Um, so I tend to maybe come across jobs or respond to jobs that I'm close to, but I don't routinely. Um, attend jobs as part of a crew on an ambulance. Yes, I'm, yes. I'm far too busy, which is unfortunate because I'd like to do more, but um, there's a lot of uh, looking, not just that region, but I also have some statewide uh, activity which I'm involved in, um, especially around stroke and things like that. So and I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that because I want to ask you about that. Just recently at the Melbourne Town Hall, uh, you received an award what was that award? Um, so the award was the inaugural President's Award um, for um, stroke. So the Stroke Foundation, um, they've been giving out awards for a few years now called the Stroke Awards uh, on an annual basis. And this year they had a category called the President's Recognition Award, which was for um, you know my um, efforts over the last eight to 10 years in the betterment of um, the management in pre-hospital setting of patients with stroke. Um, so I've done quite a, you know, obviously that length of time you do quite a bit in that field, but we're seeing significant improvements in the way stroke patients are being managed, not just in Victoria, but across Australia. So part of that, obviously, ambulance being in the pre-hospital setting and the first point of contact need to do certain things and pre-hospital notification is one of them, but 
um, you know, um, the way we manage stroke and notify and follow through and um, assess all those sorts of things. So. And I take it that's equally as vital <clears throat> in terms of handling that position in the field prior to arriving at the hospital as yep. is heart attack. I mean, that's yeah. vital, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when I um, started looking at this, so the, the stroke, um, we didn't have a guideline 10 years ago. We didn't have um, any mention of stroke in any of procedures or policies. There, were no, there was no reporting done on stroke, um, either within our organisation or up to the Department of Health. And thankfully, that's all changed now. Um, so I've driven these efforts over the last eight to ten years in, um, you know, establishing a guideline and regularly updating. I've done a lot of research work and mapped where stroke patients are in the state of Victoria and how far they are from the appropriate facility. So what used to happen, um, and this still might happen in other jurisdictions, but Stroke patients, maybe, if you're in the rural setting, you might be taken to a small rural hospital. It's not the best for those patients. Same with heart attack. You need to go to a bigger facility where there's better care, more um, assessments can be done, like CT scans and things, which the little places wouldn't have. Now, in the um, matter of stroke, you need a scan to determine if it's a clot causing the lack of blood flow to a part of the brain or a massive bleed. So um, scans got to happen first. So there's no point going to these small facilities. So that's sort of the work I've been driving through this mapping and briefing notes and business cases and things. So it's been a long journey, but we're at a point now where we do report our um, compliance to a KPI each month to the Department of Health and the government. Um, we've got guidelines, we've got policies and procedures, and certainly the pre-hospital notification is is part of that so stroke patients now have the capacity to you know potentially and in about well just in Ballarat alone it's gone from um, you know people getting thrombolysis within the 60 minute window it's gone from 20 percent to 40 percent which is a so marked improvement huge. And, and, and I know that it's all about the media all the time and the media focus yeah. on it but response times in your time with Ambulance Victoria yeah. Have you seen definite and very marked improvements in that? Or is that just a function of the available uh, personnel that are in Ambulance Victoria and the facilities, the, the ambulance, the physical equipment that's available to improve response times? Yeah, um, so what we've been doing in the last 10 years or so is, um, again, the focus on that has been right in the face of, of the media. So um, we've taken that on board. Um, we have downgraded a lot of the cases we used to go to that we classed as a code one event, so lights and sirens, um, on reflection. And, and because we've had an electronic patient care record for the past two decades, we've got a lot of data on a lot of these cases. So we can analyse you know, a specific case type and look at 10, 20, 100,000 different cases um, uh, uh, experience of those case type and say, well, actually, you know what, 99% of the time we're going to that on a code one and it turns out that they don't need it at the other end. They all come back to hospital on a normal routine drive, not pre-notified, they're not too sick. So what we've done is downgraded a lot of those cases based on research and evidence, so evidence-based, we've downgraded those. So now we don't respond to as much on a code one 
we're more available for the real emergencies, which is great. And we might divert some of our calls into our referral service that we think don't need to get an ambulance on a lights and sirens drive. Smarter reaction. Exactly, yeah. So we've actually analysed the whole aspect of our work Mm. in the last 10 years and said, you know what? We're not being smart about this. We need to get smarter. We need to do more analysis and on the evidence, change what we do. And we've done that. That's good. So our response times now are improving every day. So the allocation is much, <clears throat> well, it's clever. It's, yep. it, it, you've, got it, you've got it nailed properly now. You're yep. not going out to every call. Yep. And therefore, the natural progression of that is that the response times are far more uh, accurate, they're quicker, yep. and they're more appropriate. That's the word, I suppose, yeah, more appropriate. more appropriate. You've got, um, and you've got the current crews that existed now more available to respond to the need. Exactly. The need that's out there where yeah. we are required to attend on a Needs lights focused. and sirens. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the other side of that is the hospital waiting times. You know, we can front up and this ramping that they call it, where you might have, you know, several ambulances at a major Melbourne hospital waiting to unload their patients because there just aren't the beds available. That's a big issue for us as well. So we're trying to work with the hospitals and the government on repairing that. Um, So again, our ambulances, once they hit the hospital, can turn around in a timely manner and be back out. They're available for the next code one. That will improve response times as well. Grant, it's great to know that somebody as sensible as you is doing so much work in this area because there's a lot of hyperbole around, a lot of media comment and a lot of criticism sometimes. I think very unfairly for a very difficult job that the majority of people in the community would not want to do readily. And it's people like you that has a se- have a sensible approach to it that are making it a far better system and a service for yeah. Victorians. Um, I'm indicative, I guess, of our leadership group at the moment, which is obviously headed up by our CEO, Tony Walker, and our um, operational um, manager, Michael Stevenson. So you, people may have heard of the two of them or seen them doing interviews, but they are um, taking, I think, taking our organisation in the right direction. And there's, there's um, you know, they're, they're clever enough and thanks for the compliment to me, but I think if you compare me to maybe Tony or Michael, I might pale into comparison, but um, they've got a lot of very clever people in key positions now that are driving a lot of these changes. You're being very modest, yeah. being very modest, and it's very nice to hear, but uh, people know how hard you work. Now, Grant, just coming back, if we can, just reverting a little bit yep. to school, I wanted to ask you a question as to whether you did any volunteer work there, because quite often, what you do at school in terms of volunteer work uh, helps to uh, shape your career choice, maybe in the case of Ambulance Victoria, but also can shape people's work later on with uh, Rotary and joining Rotary Mm. in the first place. Did you do any volunteer work at school? Did you chop firewood for local pensioners or (laughs) do any collections for the Red Cross or anything that may have given you that sort of uh, psyche in terms of your involvement with Rotary later on? Um, I, was, I was heavily into sport, so I had that background. I played football and then basketball and I competition squash and those sorts of things. So that's not volunteer work, but you sort of get a feel of being part of a team and working yes, towards important. a common goal. But I was also in Cubs and Scouts 
which I think probably uh, in your question has more of an influence. More relevance yeah, to yeah. The, the doing things for yeah. other people. It's a code for yourself, yeah. but it's also doing things for other people that scouts do. Yeah, and we had, um, you might remember, I don't think they call it this anymore, but the bobber job. So we used to go out yeah. and do yard work for um, people that couldn't you know, manage their yards. And you know, you'd go bobber job and you'd go in and they'd well, give you some you money. Well, you did do that sort yeah. of work. So, yeah. so, so it was a little bit of a precursor, yeah. in other words, to Rotary possibly later on in your career. When, when did you first hear about Rotary? Um, I've sort of always been aware of Rotary, I guess, but not really having a focus on it. Um, uh, but in the, in the main, I guess, um, I was asked to join um, and then I became very um, aware of what Rotary was about because I did a little bit of background thinking, oh, what is this all about? You know, because you hear of Rotary in, you know, <coughs> veiled terms, I guess, if you're not involved in it. It's sort of they're there. We know they do good stuff, but we're not really sure what it's all about. It's a bit about. remote. Yeah. Until you yeah. get that personal experience yeah. or, or something really moves you. Uh, it's quite often uh, called your sort of uh, moment, isn't it? What is it? There's a name for it, you know, your, your, your lightning Light moment. Bulb. Light, Light bulb. Light bulb moment. moment. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. It, yeah, suddenly things become you. clearer. Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah. So how long have you been in Rotary for? Um, 14 years. Which that doesn't is, sound well, that's, long. That's but, about yeah. the length that I've been in Rotary. That's a that's a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. Uh, and w what what really motivated you in the first place was it when you did your research and you found out the things they did in the community? Was that the real motivation that it, you could be a better part of the community? Yeah, um, for me it was all about that community connection. So we'd moved to Woodend four years earlier, so in um, the end of '99, early 2000. And in 2004 was when I joined Rotary. And Woodend being a small community, um, it was important, I think, you know, to get some connection uh, locally and feel part of the community itself. And from day one, that's what I got, you know, because they were so active and still are, our, our club is still quite active in the local community with projects and fundraising and um, our local um, you know, um, newspaper, which is a monthly periodical. Our club has now produced for over 21 years. It's called the New Woodend Star. Um, and that's still an ongoing monthly production, 11 months out of the year, every year. It's a wonderful community. And I always think of Rotary because mm. when you drive into the town, there's a wonderful picket fence that yeah. I know Rotary had a lot to do with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is always, a, you know, an eye opener when you come into town. But you're, as you say, with the Rotary Club and Woodend. Tell us a little bit about the club. How would you describe it in terms of its diversity with gender and professions? How many members have you got? Uh, well, we've now got 33 members. Gee. Um, so we've had um, 18 new members in the last three years. So we started with 18 three years ago, and that was my second term as president. And there hadn't really been a focus on membership. It was just the ad hoc sort of approach. Um, so I step that up a little bit in my second um, go as president. First time was 10 years ago, so 2007 and eight. And then as I said, about three or f three years ago now. And um, so I appointed a membership director and took an active interest. And we actually developed some um, written materials on recruitment and also retention. So. Uh, we started with 18, and they, they've been maintained. So we've had 18 in the last three years, and we've only lost three. But the three that we've lost 
have only been in the last six to eight months, and two moved into state, and one left because of work priorities. Well, so that's their normal attrition, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's or right. Their normal reasons for attrition. Yeah, so yeah. that's a very good effort. And uh, tell us about your uh, gender and the professions in the club. Is it is it a good mix? Yeah, we're probably about forty three percent female. Excellent. Um, balanced, so almost balanced. Um, we have a mix of um, varying backgrounds. So we've got it- Italian background, German background, a number from the UK that were born, these people club. that were born overseas that yes. have since yeah. moved to Australia and, and then moved to Woodend and joined the club. So, yeah, we've got a good mix there. Um, we, um, was it? our age is, is quite broad as well. So we've, because of our recruitment, we've now got, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. I think we've only got one or two in their 80s, but they're very active members. They still feel young. And I would say, you know, to describe our club, I would say that we're pretty engaging, friendly and proactive. Um, and we we don't just sit back on our laurels and let things rest. So people come to our club and they're just, um, the comment usually is, you guys have a lot of fun. Yeah, your meetings. Uh, yeah, I've it's been good. to one of your yeah. meetings and I've experienced that. I could only but agree with you. Uh, Grant, uh, signature projects, local and international, uh, what, what are they? Well, locally, I've mentioned <clears throat> one, which is the New Orleans Star, that 21 years of a, a um, newspaper in the community. And it's got really good um, feedback. So the community love it. Uh, I only chatted to someone last night who rang up. I've been chairman of that committee for the last four years. Um, I'm about to step up, step off that committee, obviously, with my commitments to district governor roles. Um, so I think I'm going to be a little bit busy for the next few years. You are. <clears throat> but we've moved to a full-colour edition. And the person I spoke to last night just rang me up to say they think it's fantastic. They're glad it's continuing. Um, it used to be black and white. We did a colour front page for a couple of years, and now we've gone full-colour. So... Um, they they read that ahead of any of the other local papers like the you know print normal print media. What a compliment! What a, yeah, what so a very good. And we get a lot of the local businesses supporting us by advertising in the paper, and so therefore we tend to make a small profit each month. And then over a year, it might add up to you know a few thousand. Or some years, like a few years ago, we had a ten thousand dollar profit. We had a really good year. So and what's the level of distribution? Um, around. Many- would end in the local community and 3,655 and they're delivered to the home. So we have an arrangement with the local post office that they, the posties deliver the magazine for us. Excellent. And yeah, they also go into post office <coughs> boxes. So we, we print a lot more than that and we deliver some to the communities that aren't getting it like Macedon, Tilden, and we put copies into some of our local businesses and the um, neighbourhood house, the library, and the information centre. Great so, community action, mm. and I dare say that helps to inspire mm. membership. Yeah, yeah. So a, a lot of our um, new members have actually joined because they've read articles. We tend to put an article in about Rotary every month. We don't want to overwhelm the paper, obviously, because it's got to be a balanced community sort of view. Um, but yeah, we put articles in and a number of our members that have joined in the last few years have joined because they've read those articles and come along to a club meeting. A very yeah. clever way of attracting mm. people and a good community service. Uh, where does the club meet? 
Uh, we meet at the Victoria Hotel in Woodend. So it's the first one on the left as you drive into Woodend, so it's easy to find, right next to the train station as well. Uh, and uh, upstairs they've got a nice big room for us, which they allow us to use each week. Um, and it allows us the ability then, instead of having a set meal, if people want to, we don't have a, a commitment that people have to eat while they're there, but most do. And, um, but we can just order from a menu downstairs or off the main menu if we want. So you order what you want. You're not structured into having chicken every night or whatever that might chicken be. Chicken and peas. <laughs> chicken <laughs> and peas. So um, people have a nice meal and you get your drinks and you head upstairs and then we have our, our fun and then we call it a night. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great atmosphere and a great deal of camaraderie, which is, yeah. which is good, yeah. which I noticed. And you do good things. Mm. Uh, you were obviously president pretty early on uh, in your, uh, you know, your 14 years of service, but what yeah. roles did you have before that? Um, so before president, I was bulletin editor. Virtually the first 12 months I was in, I was put my hand up to help out with the bulletin. Well, that's been and helpful I, what you did. What yeah, you're doing <laughs> I maintained that for several years. Um, even when I was president last time, a few years ago, I was still doing the bulletin. Um, and in between that, I've been community director so looking after, that's a fairly big portfolio in any club, community, um, and foundation chair, president twice, and I've been vice president with a number of roles in, the, in that time as well. All wonderful grounding for mm. what you're about to do and you've started doing as district governor nominee, and I want to come back very shortly and talk about that. Uh, what roles have you had in the district? And the district, uh, listeners, is there to serve the club. Yeah. Uh, but what roles have you had in district? And it's District 9800, which yep. Woodend is very much part of. Yeah, so 9800. Um, so the roles I've had there was district community director for two years. Um, prior to that, I had a supportive role for the then community director of the time. Uh, and then I stepped into a role as assistant governor for two years. And when I went back to be president, I stepped off the district and that was only for the year I was president, then I was straight back on the district, which is this current year as assistant governor or mentor. So I sort of helped guide the other, the other 15, well now 15 assistant governors into their role and supporting them in um, you know, any issues or advice they might require to um, support their clubs better. Yeah. Well, Grant, uh, thank you for letting us to get to know you a little bit better and the significant leadership roles you've had so far, both in your club and, and the district, um, and maintaining all the time your work role, which is not always easy when you're doing so much for Rotary, your key role in Ambulance Victoria. Now, listeners, we're going to take a little break, uh, and when we come back, I want to talk to Grant especially about the work he is doing preparing for his role as District Governor in 2019-20. So we'll be back shortly. Welcome back. We're talking with Grant Hocking, who as District Governor nominee in District 9800 is preparing for his role as District Governor in Rotary District 9800, as I've said uh, in the earlier part of our interview, in 2019-20. Now Grant, 
you might like to explain the rather lengthy process <laughs> of becoming a district governor. Whilst you're in the role for a year, I am well aware that there's a, a lot of work up to that particular day. Yeah, that's right, Ian. Um, so just um, getting the role initially, like nominating is a big process and you've got to go through your club and get supported. And obviously you've got to have some fairly extensive background at a district level and club level and some knowledge about Rotary. So the interview for me was 90 minutes, um, seven panel members um, to be appointed, which was, um, which was uh, a good experience actually, because it allowed time to um, explain, you know, why you wanted the role and a bit of your background and all those sorts of things. And since then, it's pretty much been a roller coaster. I bet it has. Time. Your wife Melissa was with you yeah. in the interview process yeah. because yeah. Uh, she will become, as we call it in Rotary, <laughs> not euphemistically, <laughs> properly the first lady. First so lady. So yeah. it's a dual interview, and in mm. ninety minutes, that's fairly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's fairly uh, intense. Yeah, it was. Uh, look, it wasn't. Um, I didn't, wouldn't say it was intense from my perspective. It went really quickly in my mind. Yes. But it, as I said, it allowed an opportunity to get all your thoughts out and you know, um, why why you're interested in the role and also explain a bit about your background in Rotary and some of your thoughts for the future. So it's, it's very, good. very professional. I was mm. lucky enough to be on uh, the interviewing panel or committee and it's very professionally done. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. uh, Rotary is very professional, but yeah. that really, I think, uh, underscores how professional Rotary is, that interview process, because yeah. the district governor, mm. as I say, although the, the district is a is a support mechanism for clubs. Yeah. The district governor's thought processes and leadership is very important in providing a general direction. Yeah. Uh, so one of them make sure they get the right person, man or woman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, um, I mean, you've obviously got a team around you. You've got a board and a, and a district leadership team, which is now being retitled district support team for that very reason you've been saying, which is we are there to support the clubs. So it's not about leadership, it's about supporting. So I'm happy with the change in the name because I think it better reflects what we're there to do. Clubs operate independently. We provide support and guidance and if needed can step in and assist clubs at various levels when they request it. So um, it's a good good approach from that aspect as a district to take that, I think, general approach of supporting. It, it's very commercially accepted these days when you talk about the Bunnings, a lot of people used to say in the early days, head office. They don't call themselves that. No. They call them the, themselves the the support office. Yeah. And I think it's very important that yeah. that applies to Rotary as well yeah. in terms of the interaction between clubs and the mm. district. So um, I just like since the nomination, I've obviously stepped on to the board again uh, of the district and the district leadership team, support team. Um, I attend more meetings now than I ever have done, and that's only going to increase. So there's finance committees, district grants <laughs> committees, foundation committees, the monthly board and support team meetings or leadership team meetings. And um, on top of that, we do also attend training activities. So we have Zone Institute, which is the Australia, New Zealand, Pacific sort of area of, Rotary, of the Rotary world. We have a conference once a year. It goes for three days, but for three or four days before it, the district governor nominees come in and get some training. And then next year, as of July, I'll be the district governor-elect. Um, and there's another one in September this year, and there'll be another four days of training 
to, before you take up the role of district governor. Um, and that culminates in January next year with the, what they call the International Assembly, which is a week-long event. And um, the 530 district governors from around the world all meet up in San Diego and meet the world president. And again, get some training and education about how things work in Rotary so you can better support your district as a district governor. So there is a lot of preparation to take up the role. I, I often think, Grant, that Rotary is an exemplar of how a lot of corporations should plan uh, for the future and their succession planning, yeah. and Rotary does it extremely well. Now, I know that the international president uh, at that January San Diego yes. meeting announces a theme for every year, and uh, that'll become known to you for your year in January yeah. uh, 2019. But notwithstanding that theme, what is going to be your special focus in your year, Grant? Um, I think if, if I've learned anything in, in my time, in my occupation, and as well as in Rotary, it's that planning makes a big difference. So if you just have ideas, but you never document them or never discuss them, or you might chat to one or two of your fellow Rotarians, or work colleagues if it's in a workplace, it doesn't tend to go anywhere. But if you broaden that and get more people involved, plan and document, and then stick to the plan and pull it out on a regular basis and follow it. So I think I'd like to see that we plan for success. That's not just about we do keep doing what we've done in the past, but we analyse what we've done in the past, and then we plan to make it better in the future. So I'd like to see that sort of, I don't know whether that's a motto or focus, but a focus essentially, um, planning for success. And I'd like to see us um, perhaps with the um, you know, impetus of caring for the community. Um, obviously with my background, um, you know, I'd like to think that we can help people when they need it. And you know, there's some mottos of different organisations out there that sort of image that, and Rotary certain, certainly got it. But yeah, caring for the community I think is a good one as well. We talked a little earlier in the earlier part of the interview about gaining new members. Have you got any special thoughts about gaining new members? Because you mentioned before that your club has had a stellar history in doing so uh, in terms of your membership generation. Have you got any specific ways that you believe are best to do that? Um, we, we used a document, and I'd recommend this to all Rotary Clubs out, there's a document called 101 Strategies for Membership. Half of it, half of the 101 strategies are on recruitment, the other half are on retention. We isolated recruitment, we had a club meeting about it, because I, I think it's every Rotarian's responsibility, not just one person. I appointed a membership director, but their main role was engaging the membership in general. So we looked at the half of the 101 strategies for recruitment, and we picked the ones that we felt best suited the way our club um, was and, and wanted to be into the future. And so we cherry-picked those. We also then opened it up to broader club for suggestions as well. So we came up with a long list of membership strategies and the focus was then on that ev every single person has a responsibility to support those strategies. 
So as simple as, um, you know, a lot of Rotary Clubs have a greeter as you come into the door. If they've not seen you before or you knew you're a visitor or whatever, they greet you at the door and maybe introduce you to a few people on your table. Well, I said, that's fine, but that's everyone's responsibility. If you see someone at the meeting that you've not seen before, it's your responsibility to go up and greet them and say hello. So everyone has that responsibility. And you know what? That makes people feel more welcome than just one or two people and then they're oblivious as to who anyone else it's is. common sense, isn't it? Is. It is, yeah. So simple things um, and then giving them something to do when they join straight away. Um, don't leave them sitting there for months or years wondering what Rotary is all about because you know why we joined? Most people would have the same answer to be active in the community, exactly. to help the community. Exactly. Yeah, to feel connected to the community. So we get them involved straight away at Woodend. Um, we get them engaged in our local projects, our Operation Clef, which we do an egg auction every week at our club meeting. We get them to maybe run the egg auction or collect the money from people that are bidding and things like that. So it's a progressive auction, if you like. So all the money piles up at the end to a decent amount by the end of the night. And that goes off to support Bangladesh uh, patients with cleft palate. Um, so uh, $300 a surgery, which is very cheap when you look at the cost of surgery anywhere very else in the so. world. Um, and we get them involved in our New Orleans Star project. We have folding once a month, so we encourage them to come along. It's just about engagement. So don't leave them sitting there stagnating. Apparently, I think the stats show about um, half new members leave within the first two years. So we, we're getting them in, and then they're walking out the door within two years. So half engage of them. them, embrace them, yeah. involve them. Yeah, exactly. That's what the, the, the strategy yeah. is. And that, that's, that's what's worked for us, and I'm assuming it would work for others, and I know it's worked for other clubs at the same time. But, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, we have a whole page of strategies about membership, and as long as you've got it documented, you're routinely and, and um, often talking about it, then you're more likely to have success than if you just talk amongst one or two of you about, oh, geez, we haven't had many new members for a while. We should do something about it. Well, actually, let's do something. Yeah. I like it. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> now, Grant, I always ask our guests this, especially if they're a district governor or they're a district governor-elect or, in your case, a district governor nominee. At the end of your year, what would you like members of this district, 9800, to say about your year as district governor? What, what would you like them to say about you, the person, um, the leader? The leader. <laughs> uh, I'd like them to say that um, we've had a successful year, but more so that they felt supported throughout the year. So the Rotarians felt supported through the year in their activities. And again, we'll come back to that point we made earlier that the district leadership or support team is there exactly for that reason. So clubs shouldn't be, shouldn't feel like, you know, we're there as big brother and they need to feel supported. So in everything they do, as soon as somebody in a club or, you know, the club hierarchy says, or the membership says, we need a hand here, we'll be there to give them that hand. And at the end of the year, they'll say, you know what, we mightn't have been as successful as we were if it wasn't for the support of the district. And they were there for us when we needed them. So and I think I'd like that. Yeah. yeah. The district's gentle guidance. Yeah. That's, yeah. What, you, yeah. that's what you're alluding yeah. to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Provide that guidance, advice, support, 
experience. There's people on district with years of experience. You know, people like yourself in international, you know, years of experience. So all you've got to do is put your hand up, ask a question. You know what? You'll provide an answer. I'll provide an answer where I can. Or we'll point them in the direction of somebody who can provide the answer. And that's what they're looking for, that support. Sensible thinking. Well, Grant Hocking, thank you so much for joining us on the Rotary Radio Show. And thank you especially for your contribution in another year of putting service above self, which is our Rotary motto. You know, your work ethic, Grant, uh, is a real example of what uh, Rotary can do in the community at large. Good luck with the remainder of this year. And uh, this year as District Governor nominee and next year as District Governor-elect. And then in your major uh, role as district governor in your own right in 2019-2020. And we'd certainly like to talk to you again, and maybe even on an ongoing basis as you go through this journey of preparation. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Ian. It's been a pleasure to come along, and I'd certainly be happy to come back at any time. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This podcast was produced and presented by Ian Salick, of Rotary District 9800 in Victoria, Australia. More podcasts can be found on iTunes by typing into your browser Rotary Radio Doing Good in Victoria or alternatively by going to the Rotary District 9800 website at www.rotarydistrict9800.org.au and clicking on Rotary Radio.